HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese, where cheesemakers have been making award-winning cheese for generations. Go to wisconsincheese.com to order directly from Wisconsin Dairies to your home. This is What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and today uh, we'll be talking with Dr. Eric Diebel, a large animal veterinarian who um, prior to is now the policy director at the National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition. Uh, prior to joining NSAC, uh, Eric worked in the U.S. Senate on farm and food policy with the office of Senator Kirsten Gillibrand. His commitment to sustainable, equitable, and just food systems comes from his time with farmers, ranchers, dairy producers and the people who make sure the food they produce is safe, affordable, and available to everyone in their own community. And prior to his veterinary career, as if that were not impressive enough, he worked in the not-for-profit sector ensuring safe housing conditions for elderly and disabled persons. Um, Eric, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, I wanted to, um, you know, sort of illuminate for uh, listeners. Most of my listeners are somehow either peripherally or directly involved in agricultural programs. Um, so I wanted you to 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 help us understand what the um, Coronavirus Food Assistance Program, or CFAP, is all about, given that it is, uh, according to the press release that caused me to call you, um, the largest uh, agricultural um, <laughs> bailout, I think, of its time. Um, so let's let's start just by describing what it is. Well, thank you, Katie. And I'm, I'm really happy to speak with you today and to everybody who may be listening. Uh, the CFAP program is, as you said, the largest single transfer from USDA to farmers uh, in the history of the USDA. And it grows out of the CARES Act, which was passed uh, by Congress and signed by the president uh, a few months ago. Uh, And from that legislative language came the CFAP program that was developed by USDA. And CFAP is is a two-part program. There's two components. The first is the Food Box Program, which is a program whereby USDA procures food from farmers, has them packaged into packages and boxes that are then given to uh, emergency feeding organizations, uh, food banks and food pantries. Uh, And so that's about $3 billion uh, worth of procurement and transfer. And then there's about $16.5 billion that are direct payments that are made to farmers. Uh, And these are to compensate farmers for price loss um, for eligible commodities 
that resulted from the coronavirus pandemic. Mm -hmm. I'm going to back you up for just a second to talk about the food box program. Now, this is the same program in which we've recently been reading news stories about um, entities such as a catering company in Texas called Create a Date uh, that had no experience in um, in working on a scale like this, and yet somehow they were awarded a contract. In general, is that how this program has been rolled out? That it's gone to private sector uh, organizations like Create a Date rather than um, through something more, you know, I, I don't know, for lack of a better word, sort of community sources or or more, uh, you know, like. I don't know, like the Rhode Island Food Bank or something. Like, why did something like Create a Date get a gig like that? I guess is my question. So USDA opened a, a bidding process and uh, took, it appears, most of the bids that were offered uh, to them. Uh, and I would strongly suspect because of the accelerated timeline for the development of this program yeah. uh, and the rapid need to get food out of the fields and into the food banks, uh, that perhaps the degree of vetting uh, was less than it otherwise would have been for I a see. large three billion federal procurement program. Yeah, uh, and you're right. You know why not the Rhode Island Food Bank? I mean, there's no one in Maine that received one of these contracts, and as a result, Maine growers are excluded from the program, and Maine food banks are going to struggle to meet the needs of the members of their community. Wow. So there were a couple of shortcomings here, both on uh, regional lines and in terms of who was um, selected uh, to participate and who USDA did outreach to in order to ensure that they participated. And I would say that not only in who was awarded the contracts, but in who was um, who, who USDA sought to procure food from, you know, we've got a lot of local and regional direct market producers who are really hurting because the the things that you do in order to limit the impacts of a pandemic, social distancing, closing schools, closing markets, um, stopping large public gatherings, are the exact things that eliminate the markets for direct market farmers overnight. And right. so there's a lot of folks out there that had a lot of production that really needed a, a new market and a new place to go. Yeah. And USDA missed the opportunity to specifically target those producers and make sure that they were able to participate fully in the food box program. Yeah. Well, I, I'm not going to get too bogged down in that, but it's, it's, it seemed a scandal and a shame to me. And I, I, I hope there is some kind of an investigation in that. I'm, I'm a long time conspiracy theorist. <laughs> well, <laughs> and you, so... don't, you, you don't have to wear much of a tinfoil hat to see a problem <laughs> with this particular program. Yeah, right. And I would point, I would point you to uh, the fact that uh, a number of uh, members of the Ag Committee have uh, written a letter to the Secretary uh, asking for uh, <laughs> asking to see their notes uh, yeah. and for, for a fuller explanation of the program's yeah. implementation. Yeah. Absolutely. So now to go back to the other 16 billion with a B that we are talking about, um, in the press release that encouraged me to call you to have you uh, speak to this topic for us today, um, you, you cited a number of sort of barriers to entry, like just the fact that there are a lot of hoops that farmers have to jump through um, in terms of filling out paperwork or, or establishing their bona fides. And I wondered if you could just take us through a few of the issues that would face kind of your basic, uh, you know, even the guys that you were talking about a minute ago, the direct-to-consumer type uh, operations. What, what are some of the issues that face them in terms of being able to get a slice of the pie? So, so USDA 
has a lot of money that they need to push out and they need to do it quickly. And so they created a program that was fairly simple in its construction. It pays folks based on the loss of price of a commodity that they grew. And the payments that they make is the amount of that loss times the amount of that commodity that you produced. And that's that calculates your payment. So if you think about it, if you are a large farmer with a simple rotation, maybe growing corn and beans in rotation, yeah. um, you only need to have two prices for two different crops and filling out the paperwork that is necessary and appropriate for, for any program that USDA sure. is, is going to create is a pretty easy thing to do. And you're also very likely to have a relationship, uh, probably even a positive one, with the FSA office in your community that is going to be processing this paperwork. So, you know, it's pretty easy to walk in on day one when the program opens and say, this is what I grow, this is how much of it I grew, and then to take a step back and wait for USDA to issue a payment. And payments have already gone out. So to USDA's credit, they are moving this money pretty quickly into the hands of folks who um, who are eligible for the program. The problem comes in when you are not that large, simple rotation producer. And again, to get back to, as you said, the, the direct market, local and regional folks, um, let's say you grow uh, 20 different crops and you sell into five different markets. Well, you've got a hundred different price points that you would want to keep track of. And Let's say you pivoted from direct market to uh, a delivery CSA and incorporated uh, incorporated new tools, new boxes, new washing stations into your delivery system, and then incurred a bunch of transportation costs in order right. to stay in business. USDA doesn't look at any of that, right? Oh. If if they do not give any way for you to demonstrate the actual losses or the actual costs that you incurred as it relates to coronavirus, there's no way that you can bring them receipts. And if one of those 20 commodities that you grow isn't in uh, the list of 44 approved commodities, uh, then you don't get paid. And there's some big things in there. There's a lot of products in there that just don't, don't appear uh, on the list of eligible commodities. And so now you've got a bunch of folks that are coming into the height of their growing season, um, trying to uh, you know get things in the ground, pull things out of the ground, um, deliver their crops to market, uh, and now USDA is saying if you would like to include additional commodities on this list of eligible commodities, say kale, something that you know lots right. of you know farmers grow, um, please provide all the pricing data that you have. Uh, to demonstrate the losses that you had so that we can consider adding this to the eligible list of commodities when we'll go ahead and make the determination of how much we think that was worth. And so you get this situation where the burden borne by the diversified smaller producers is much, much greater than the burden faced by the larger folks that have simpler rotations. Sure. And Here's the other thing, and it's really important to, to make this uh, um, uh, central in any conversation that we have. USDA um, doesn't have the greatest track record um, when it comes to meeting the needs of um, farmers of color, uh, young farmers, 
yeah. um, folks that are farming in a different way than uh, like a conventional producer. So these are folks that are you know, maybe producing organically or grass fed or have a sustainability at the core of their production system. Um, that is not a constituency that USDA has always engaged fully uh, and sometimes discriminated against actively. And so if you are a diversified small farmer and you're going to try to you know, make an application for this program um, and you have to go into the FSA office, maybe for the first time, maybe that's another barrier to entry. Uh, and so there's lots of challenges for the smaller, lower resource farmers in accessing this, this aid. And for the guys who are growing wheat, corn, soy, cotton, or rice, for example, as examples of the biggest commodity uh, <clears throat> crops that we have, basically, um, they can just, yeah, they just have the one crop or the two crops that they have to identify. And then because they have huge acreage, they're going to reap enormous benefits. I mean, one of the things that struck me was that some of their payments could exceed as much as $750,000, which seems like almost more than maybe they would normally make? Is that possible? Uh, so again, right up front, just because you're big, just because you grow uh, a limited number of things does not mean that the coronavirus did not hurt your bottom line. And it does not mean that your your operation isn't suffering too. And so, sure. you know, absolutely like important to say that up front. But, but yes, um, you know, it is, it has been, uh, it has been shown that in previous compensation programs, uh, particularly the market facilitation program, which mm -hmm. looks a lot like uh, the CFAT program in a lot of ways, um, that some producers were dramatically um, overcompensated for the actual losses that they incurred. And I don't know what the pricing data that USDA used when they calculated um, their uh, payment rates. Um, and many farmers are complaining that they are much too low and they don't actually compensate mm -hmm. them fully. Um, but, you know, there, there are some folks who will um, make, uh, will receive a very large payment um, from the CFAP program. Yeah. The other thing for folks that are listening in, uh, just because you receive a CFAP payment does not mean that you can't also receive a, a revenue payment, either an ARC or PLC-based revenue support program, or a crop insurance claim uh, if your crop does not uh, come up to grade or come up to the production level uh, for which you've insured it. So this is not, by any stretch of the imagination, the only opportunity for folks to be compensated um, on the value of that crop over this growing year. Hmm. Fascinating. I'm going to move along because um, <clears throat> we have a lot to cover, and I, I know you're a bit pressed for time. Um, you alluded to the fact that it wasn't uh, wasn't obvious what the pricing structure or how the USDA determined pricing um, formulas, but um, you did also say that they they tend to uh, to avoid including sort of added value or grass-fed or organic or other um, things that would differentiate a commodity um, from, you know, something a little more of a niche product, and that that type of product definitely does not get extra money. And it does cost more to produce those crops, so or, or you know, organic or grass-fed or whatever it is. Um, so, what what kind of economic impact would that have on a small to medium scale farmer who has a you know diversified farm, um, and whose uh, you know whose whose stock and trade is that they're organic, uh, and they're making pennies on the dollar for their crop? I mean, like how 
Are there other programs that would help to support them or are they just going to twist in the wind, basically? There's going to be a lot of folks twisting in the wind. Uh, okay. <laughs> and and it, it is it is a real shortcoming of the program that it does not recognize the additional value that some farmers earn on on their crops and on their products. Um, in in the interest of creating a program that is simple and efficient to administer, uh, USDA did not include any additional value premiums, as you say, for things like organic or products that are sold at local and regional markets um, or grass fed or any of the other sort of things that might help one farmer set their product uh, apart from, from others. And, and that's really disappointing because um, if you invest in your operation to make it more sustainable, um, to, to make processes more environmentally benign or more humane, um, that costs money. And ordinarily, yeah. you you a farmer will expect to be compensated for that by going directly to a customer or consumer who feels strongly about that production system or strongly about the relationship with that farmer, and they're willing to pay a bit more. Um, right. And and that direct premium uh, that that farmer would would obtain is exactly what helps them afford to be more sustainable or be more humane. Uh, and without that premium. There's going to be a lot of folks that um, that suffer this year, uh, and we're concerned uh, at, at NSAC and many of our uh, 130 uh, member organizations are really concerned that the farmers that they serve um, won't be adequately compensated by this program. And as a matter of fact, the compensation rates are so low for the eligible commodities that a lot of folks won't even consider it to be worth their time. And that's that's a challenge because we don't want anybody who's eligible for a payment not to receive that payment, but this is this is a uh, this is a decision that many many thousands of farmers across the country are facing right now, and they're sitting down with the USDA calculator and trying to figure out if the program um, is worth their time. Wow, that's that's tragic. We're going to take a short break right now uh, for a sponsor drop. We'll be right back with Dr. Eric Diebel from the National Sustainable Agricultural Coalition. Despite challenging circumstances, dairy farmers are working hard to make sure communities across the country have fresh, nutritious food to keep us healthy during these uncertain times. It's more important than ever to eat, enjoy, and support real dairy. Want to help? Go to wisconsincheese.com where you can order award-winning Wisconsin cheese directly from cheesemakers to keep our family dairy farms in business for generations to come. So this is What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. If for some reason you've forgotten what that was, even though you're listening to a podcast after the fact, I don't know why I bothered to do that, but anyway. Um, and we're talking with Eric Diebel from NSAC. And we, um, the next question I had for you about the CFAP program, um, which is uh, in fact the, um, just to be clear again, it's the Coronavirus Food Assistance Program. I thought that's what it was, but I didn't want to say the wrong thing. Um, we're, I'm... 
I wrote a book about the meat industry. So that's a real, that's always a really interesting topic for me. And, um, you know, I, I know that every consumer is aware of the, you know, extraordinary numbers of um, animals that have been uh, basically wasted, slaughtered, and then buried or incinerated uh, because of the bottlenecks in the processing system, which goes back to other topics that we're not going to explore today. Um but one of the things that struck me, and um, I know we talked before the show a little bit about uh, sort of the the hole in the language around CFAP um, that would that should have addressed the position of the contract grower, and the and the hog and poultry industries are both dominated by contract growing um, protocols. So what's going to happen to those guys? I mean, they don't own those animals. They're owned by Tyson or Purdue or Cargill. Um, so there's no language that helps them. I mean, when they don't have hogs or chickens to sell, they don't have any money. You are correct. And it is a problem. And I wish that we knew the answer. Um, the program, the way that it's structured and the way that the language is constructed uh, says that contract growers should be eligible for a payment if they bear risk. Now, the question is, how does USDA determine who is bearing risk in this particular uh, relationship? Yeah. Uh, and, and that's a really important question, because if you're going to, uh, if a farmer is going to suffer for the drop in price for the commodity that they, they sell, you want to make sure that the money that they're eligible for goes to them and not to anybody else in that uh, particular production system, which is also a concern. Uh, and so we are working right now as a coalition uh, to try to get some uh, answers uh, from USDA. Uh, we're working with uh, Farm Aid uh, and the Farmer Legal Action Group um, in order to uh, get some questions over to USDA to get clarification um, so that every farmer who may be eligible for a payment knows this uh, and knows that they can apply. Now, the other thing is really important to note is the way this program works is uh, you come in and you, you come into the FSA. I mean, obviously don't go into the office now because of coronavirus, but when you make the initial application, you self-certify. So you tell USDA what production you have and you go, you work through the payment calculator and you, you get a, a, a calculated value for your payment. Now, if there are folks that believe themselves to be eligible, but then USDA determines that they aren't and they've received a payment, that's going to be a problem because they're going to have to give that Ooh. money back. And so before USDA pushes all this money out the door, we'd like to be very certain that they are clear about what contract growers are eligible for the program so that there is no chance that USDA comes back to them and says, oh, no, no, sorry, we made a mistake and we'd like you to get that money back. <laughs> yeah, good luck with that too, right? I mean, did I read correctly that poultry is excluded from the list of commodities that are on that 44-item uh, list that you mentioned at the top of the show? That was that was one of the things that really caught a lot of people by surprise. Yeah. And, and the reason that USDA has has given in uh, in public statements is that poultry did not have a more than five percent drop in value during the two time frames in which USDA was assessing price impacts from the coronavirus. Now that 
um, doesn't do anything to address the the contract growing uh, issue that that we just discussed briefly. Um, and it certainly points to the fact that uh, many producers um, saw precipitous drops within their region. And mm-hmm. again, this is a national level program with a national price. And so if you regionally suffered a great loss to the value of your of your of your poultry, um, that that you're just not eligible. Wow. Oh my. Um, let's, uh, let's go back to something else. I know, uh, we have something else we talked about for just a quick second. And, and you said that the CFAP program fails to really address some of the issues facing beginning farmers or urban farmers or, uh, historically underserved farmers. You know, is that simply because of the relationship that USDA tends to have with those types of farmers? Um, or are there other reasons underlying that, um, sort of lack of acknowledgement of this sector of the agricultural community? Well, it, it's, a, it's a confluence of a couple of things. You know, first, um, the folks that are growing, uh, again, small uh, amounts of many different types of crops that are receiving a premium payment uh, because they're selling directly to their customers, uh, this, this program is not designed to meet their needs. Uh, and that tends to be uh, a lot of uh, urban farmers uh, or folks even in peri-urban production. Uh, and so uh, it is um, a structural problem with the program not meeting their specific needs. And then again, um, not to take away from the efforts that that USDA has, has made over the last decade to engage more with um, urban producers, uh, but there are not a lot of uh, FSA offices in large metros, and so <laughs> right. True. This is again, it comes it comes down to to relationship and you know yeah. familiarity. And if if you are a, uh, uh, a an urban producer and you don't think that USDA programs are going to work for you, uh, and USDA hasn't made the investment in um, helping you understand how they can serve uh, your operation, then you're probably not going to think that this new CFAT program is going to work well for you. And so you right. may just dismiss it out of hand. And so there's, there's a couple of different obstacles there. Right. Right. Um, what, what, what would, what would really improve this program? I mean, how, how could they make this program more inclusive and also more um, I think sort of nimble in the sense of uh, being able to account for uh, sort of added value or niche producers who are uh, creating premium products, what what are the what kind of measures do you think the USDA should be um, looking at? Because in general, the, that community is fairly well underserved by the USDA. In any case, is it not? It, it is. It is. Um, it is not. Um, typical uh, and therefore doesn't tend to be uh, USDA's um, first uh, constituency they seek to serve. It's not to say that they won't or that they are unwilling or unhappy to do so. It's just if if you're if you're uh, if you don't fit into one of the existing USDA boxes, it can be right. a real challenge for them to figure out how to serve you. So. There's a couple of things that USDA could consider doing, and they certainly have uh, lots of opportunity to do so because of the um, many degrees of freedom that Congress extended to them in the CARES Act. 
uh, USDA could use the existing program structure that they have right now, but add a couple of additional eligible commodities. Um, certainly, they could look to uh, either add them individually or perhaps uh, look at a typical market basket for local and regional producers, assign a price loss to that, and make folks eligible for uh, an idealized or normalized basket of vegetables that you would find uh, or, or other types of produce that you would find uh, at a farmer's market, perhaps by different region. And we know that USDA has pricing data on this that they maintain through AMS. Sure. They could also, uh, they could also um, allow farmers to receive a payment um, for their actual costs. Uh, rather than the sort of theoretical calculated value of their losses. Um, many small diversified farmers keep copious records uh, because they do sell at so many markets. Uh, yeah. And allowing uh, a, a process by which a farmer could bring actual costs, both in terms of what they lost due to price or what they lost due to sales, but also the additional costs that they incurred to meet this new market demand and market reality. Giving farmers a place to come and actually show what they lost would be incredibly helpful in making sure that people who were affected by the coronavirus uh, pandemic are compensated fairly. Yeah. And then the other thing that USDA could do is, is be honest uh, with themselves and and with Congress and and with farmers and say, look, this program's probably not going to work really well for um, this particular group of farmers. Uh, Congress said, you know, these folks are eligible uh, um, for payments, but it doesn't seem like this program is going to work as well as we had hoped. And figure out a different way to do it, um, perhaps by using. I don't know, the NAP program uh, or a, a different type of tool that they have in their toolbox to help make sure that uh, diversified farmers, local and regional producers, um, sustainable farmers, uh, organic grass-fed, all of those, all of those other, other farmers right. um, that, that NSAC cares so much about. Um, that they're that they're compensated fairly. So they 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 have a lot of flexibility within the existing program. Um, that uh, I think that uh, Congress would probably be very very excited to see them use uh, productively. Uh, and you know if they uh, need additional authorities in order to make those local and regional producers uh, whole, I think uh, I think Congress would be excited about the opportunity to extend them that particular authority as well. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. I have one last question. Could you have time for one more and then we'll I let you go? I certainly do. Okay, great. Certainly do. So um, this is kind of the main thrust of my whole, you know, <laughs> interview with you is, is, you know, what, what the, what we have seen in the course of this pandemic is the, you know, quote unquote, lack of resilience in our food system. And, you know, to give an example uh, would be the, the bottlenecks in processing uh, animal proteins, for example, which caused, you know, the euthanization of millions and millions of animals. Um, and there have been other supply chain bottlenecks uh, in terms of distribution shortages in grocery stores. And everybody has seen that. What, when we talk about a lack of resilience, what does that really mean uh, in the big picture, not just the short-term shortages? Um, and also, what what can we do to, to kind of mitigate some of those? Um, now that we've exposed those issues, what what do you think would be best plans to mitigate them? This is a, this is a huge 
Huge yeah, I know. <laughs> no, no, this is, and, and, and a great and a great closer. Uh, no, it, it, this really is a, an extraordinary problem. The, the The coronavirus pandemic has has helped a lot of people who aren't familiar with how our food systems work see some of the problems that that um, our farmers and our coalition members have been working on for for many decades. Yeah, uh, and it is it is terrible that this pandemic happened. Um, but if there is any hint of a silver lining it is that maybe, maybe folks that aren't directly part of the food system will begin to see just how out of whack things have become. And, and there's, there's a lot, there's a lot here, but I think at the heart of it is we have allowed concentration and consolidation within certain sectors of our food production system to get so wildly out of control that there are fewer options for consumers, fewer options for workers, fewer mm-hmm. options for farmers, uh, and none of them are particularly well served by the highly concentrated uh, food production system that we have now. The reason, um, there's lots of reasons, uh, that this has happened. Part of it has to do with uh, what is considered uh, a reason to bring an antitrust uh, claim against uh, a sector. Uh, and I think you can start to see the cracks there as the Department of Justice has recently um, begun to look at issues around price fixing uh, yeah. in the beef sector and has taken some and legal poultry. action. And poultry as well, absolutely. Uh, and, and so that that's just... That's just the most proximate cause. That's the most proximate concern that people are seeing now. Really what it gets down to is we've allowed, we've bought into the false notion that efficiency is the only thing that matters in food production systems. And that cost at the retail level is the only way that you can measure value. And that is just absurd. Uh, because what happens is when you invest in a system that is optimally efficient, it externalizes every cost imaginable. So every harm that's done to worker, every environmental insult, uh, every animal life that is wasted, uh, and every farmer that has limited options about how to get their product to market, um, all of those folks suffer um, so that things can be maximally efficient. And when something does happen, like a coronavirus pandemic or whatever pandemic or or disaster comes next, uh, and there will be a next, there will be another pandemic, there will be other disasters, um, we, we realize that instead of maximizing the efficiency of a system, maybe we should consider um, some redundancy in a system as a reasonable uh, investment. It, it's It's not it's not anti-efficient, it's, it's pro-resilience. And so having many smaller regional uh, slaughter facilities that serve farmers more directly, that helps. You yeah. know, if there's a flood in one place or uh, workers uh, become ill in a particular uh, location, um, 
then that location can 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 close down for a while and and they and and employers can take care of their employees and everybody can be well and safe and then that pro, that that facility can come back online when it's appropriate and safe to do so without destabilizing the food system without having to send animals uh to to euthanize animals and, and send them into a landfill you know without having to invoke uh uh, the Defense Production Act to force <laughs> folks back to work when when we yeah. know that is an action that is going to not just hurt people that's going to cause the death of 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 our fellow you know our fellow Americans citizens and, absolutely yeah, you know grotesque it, it's it's obscene and, and so you, you know we we've 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 allowed we've allowed our system. Um, to prize efficiency for a very few over resiliency and decency for the rest of us. And that's, that's something that as an organization we are committed to, to reversing uh, and, and for as long as it takes. Well, uh, great answer. Thank you very much. And uh, thanks so much for joining me today, Eric. Um, I just want to remind people that they can sign up for a newsletter from the National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition, otherwise known as NSAC. Um, and that's, what is the, what's the URL for that? Uh, it, just go to sustainableagriculture.net. And you will yep. find us there. Uh, you can get links to sign up for our weekly uh, roundup that goes out every Friday. Uh, yep. You can take a look at the dozens and dozens of blogs that we've written uh, on, on CFAP and inequities in the food system. Um, we've got lots of super, super deep dives there uh, that go into publications on specific programs uh, on conservation and food systems and research. Um Everything that you could ever want to know about sustainable agriculture is there or a link to one of our partner organizations or coalition members um, that has even more information than we do. So I yeah. invite everyone to go ahead and take a look. I, I really, I urge people to do that, especially people in the agricultural community, because one of the other things that NSAC often lists are, is our grant opportunities from USDA and other entities. Um, you know, it's, it's a great clearinghouse for information uh, on, on those things, as well as uh, what's going on uh, in sustainable agricultural uh, entities, you know, worldwide. So um, Eric, thank you so, so much for joining me today. I really appreciate your time. I hope you'll come back because you're a wonderful interview. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Um, and you. we'll send you a link in a couple of days, uh, or maybe even later today. Um, but in the meantime, many thanks. Katie, thank you very much. It was absolute pleasure. And I really enjoyed the opportunity to, uh, to speak with you. It was a great interview. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And uh, thanks, of course, to my sponsor and to my wonderful engineer, Matt. Um, thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll see you next week. Have a good one. Bye for now. What Doesn't Kill You is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like. 
tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.